please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, please. Luke 24, and I'll read from uh, verse 45. Well, I'll read from 33 to 53. The sermon will be focused on verse 45 uh, and following. Luke 24, 33 uh, and following. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as soon as they had thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when they had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye any meat? And they gave him a piece of the broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Amen. Now here we come to look at the Gospel of Luke. Luke the physician, uh, as Paul refers to him in Colossians 4. Uh, clearly, Luke a historian. Also, Luke a companion of Paul, as we remember the we sections uh, in the book of Acts. What I think we have to remember is Luke and Acts are t- a two-volume set that Luke, the physician historian, wrote likely for a man high in authority, Theophilus, who may potentially have even funded Luke uh, as he did his research. If you look at the beginning chapters of Luke, you understand that Luke must have went uh, and talked with Mary uh, and others of the extended family. Uh, so he did a, a great amount of work. 
And I think it's important to understand. It's also interesting that scholars say that the two books are about the same size and that those two books, Luke and Acts, are about as much as you could writ on, writ, write on the normal uh, script uh, or on the normal sheet that would be the, the size that we're given in those times. So it's a two-volume set, uh, and there's some overlap between the two books. And I think as you think about that, uh, it helps you to understand what's going on here. Was anybody a little confused that uh, it appears that Jesus, here in this passage I read, we have the disciples from Emmaus coming to the upper room. It appears to be uh, the Lord's Day evening of the resurrection. Uh, and just 20-some verses later, we have the ascension. Seems rather quick. Did Christ ascend the same day he rose from the dead? No. Uh, we have in Acts uh, 1, 1 through 3, kind of, that we're told that it's 40-day ministry. I think, it's, I think what we learn is Jesus was saying these things over and over again to the disciples during that 40-day ministry. It's very interesting. In that 40-day ministry, of the eight times that we have uh, something about the, what he said, it was always on the Lord's Day. Now, that's not that he wasn't present with God's people at other times, but what the gospel writers are pleased to record is Christ meeting with his people when they're gathered on his day. The centrality of corporate worship. Let me read for you Acts 1, 1 through 3, to see this overlap. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, so he's referring to Luke, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Hmm. So Luke is about what God, what Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And continues to do and teach even today. Right? Our great prophet, priest, and king. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You see, here Luke lets us know that this one day in the end of Luke is a forty-day ministry that Luke doesn't tell us much about. It's John that actually fills some of that out for us the most, the gospel writers. But we see that Jesus is going to speak about the kingdom of God. He's going to speak about what he had been doing uh, and what he's going to do and teach, about his person and about his work, about his passive obedience, of obedience to the law of God, uh, and his active obedience uh, for the joy that was set before him to go to the cross and bear the guilt of the sins of all of his people throughout the ages. That's what this is about. Here in Luke 24, uh, we have three accounts. We have the account of Christ meeting with the women in verses 1 and following. Then we have Christ meeting with the disciples on the road to Emmaus in verses 13 and following. And then here in 33 and following, we have this one account of at least two different places. We have um, Jesus in the upper room on uh, the Sabbath afternoon, it appears, of his resurrection. And then we have him uh, going to 
uh, the mount going to Bethany and having this and seeing the ascension. So let's look particularly today at verses 44 through 49. And the theme of this message is found in verse 38. Ye are witnesses. You see, Jesus puts that in the indicative. What we are. He doesn't say, and you need to be witnesses, does he? He lets the disciples present there, particularly apostles, but as representatives of his people, that we, they and we, throughout the generations, are his witnesses. So what I want us to look at in this section is the impetus for missions. What's the driving force of missions, first? Then I want us to consider the message of missions from this passage. Then we want to look at the strategy of missions, and then the promise, fourthly, of missions. Let's consider first the impetus, the driving force for missions. We find it here in verses 44 uh, and 45. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. You see in those two verses, Word and Spirit. Word and Spirit. Christ teaches them by reminder. He says, this is what I've been teaching you. He also informs them of where he's been getting his teaching from. It's been from the Old Testament. All sections of the Old Testament. The Mosaic Law... The prophets, as the Jews would have understand it, would have been the historic writings as well as the prophets. Uh, And when he spoke of the Psalms, that would have been in reference to the wisdom literature, the Psalms being the largest portion, uh, and often the term that was used to describe that section uh, of the Old Testament corpus of Scripture. So Jesus is going to teach them by word and by spirit. He's going to teach them and he has taught them by what is written. And if we ask, what did, the, what did the Scriptures and what do the Old Testament Scriptures focus most upon, it is Christ himself, is it not? Christ of the covenants. In the covenantal structure, we continue to see the pictures of, the types of the picture of what's called the antitype, Christ himself. The perfect prophet, priest, uh, and king. The one that fulfills the covenant of grace. The one that is that one that would crush the serpent's head, would break his neck. That one that would be like the deliverer Moses. The one that would be the king that rules like David. The one prophesied of old that would come and bring in a new covenant where the law would be written on the hearts of God's people, not just on stone. But what's interesting is we find in Peter, Peter in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, tell us that one thing that the prophets and the teachers of old taught most about was the humiliation and the exaltation 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, ascension. What's interesting is we also find Paul with that emphasis. We find that even in this little, almost creedal form in 1 Timothy 3.16, there is Paul speaks about the church being the pillar and ground of the truth. The place where the truth is proclaimed, the place where the truth is to be maintained. That place, he says, is the church of the living God. And then he gives this little creed about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the satisfaction of the Father in being justified in the Spirit. But also it speaks of his ascension, it speaks of the preaching of the gospel to the nations, it speaks of the response of the nations believing on him. These are the things that are central uh, in that teaching. And these are the things that Jesus must have been reminding the disciples in this upper room. Clearly, Luke, the physician historian, is running out of parchment, and he's going to summarize Christ's teaching here. And that's what he's doing. He's drawing it in. One thing it does assume, doesn't it, is a biblical doctrine of Scripture itself. You see, Jesus clearly is, by implication, saying your authority is the Word of God. It can be trusted. It's inspired. It's God-breathed, and it's infallible. You can believe it. It's true. Clearly, that's Christ's assumption here, isn't it? He says these things concerning me. His death and burial. And we find in the New Testament, particularly with Paul, the focus upon the cross. In Galatians 6.14, he says, "Of glory in nothing but the cross. All of Christ's work, all of His redemptive acts center in that act. And yet Paul can say uh, in 1 Corinthians 1 that it is the foolishness of the cross. It's the foolishness of preaching the cross. He says that's not something that's attractive to the world. It's not something, it's not a message that the unbeliever, apart from the grace of God, is going to have any interest in. It's going to seem so primitive, so ridiculous. And isn't that what the scholars of a hundred years ago thought, many of them, being influenced by higher criticism and as they pursued their PhDs uh, in, from Germany and elsewhere? and ushered in a whole wave of liberalism within the mainline denominations that even included Presbyterians. But Jesus goes back to the Scripture, and He says, hey, this has been the mission of My Father all along, that I would come, that I would die to pay the penalty for sins, that I would be raised, that I would ascend, and that the Gospel would be preached, not just to the Jews, but to the Jews first and to the Gentiles, to everybody else. So this message, this impetus, is the mission of God. God's been about relationship with us, those created in His image from all eternity. He planned it, and then after the fall... He's been all about restoring that relationship with His people. 
Amen? That's the mission. That's what he's been teaching here in the upper room again, reminding them of. That's what he's been teaching them for three and a half years as he's been with them. But he also illuminates them. He makes them to understand. Then open to their understanding. Remember in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6, we're told that the Scriptures tell us all things we need for faith and for life. Everything we're supposed to think, everything we're supposed to do. And in that doing also includes everything we're rightly to feel. It is acknowledging that we have affections as well as a will and as well as an intellect. But they go on to say, nevertheless, that's a pretty important word, nevertheless, you need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It's necessary for the saving understanding of the Scriptures. All that's revealed in the Word. And here, Jesus is giving them that spiritual illumination. That insight that they need. Now here it says Jesus gives that. We see in most of the Scripture that it's the person of the Holy Spirit that illuminates us. Was there a contradiction here? Well, no. Because the three persons of the Godhead are united in their activity, aren't they? Richard Phillips, or Rick Phillips, pastor of Second Presbyterian PCA in Greenville, said this, Missions is the result of the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's basically the necessary consequence. That's why Jesus came, and then it implies what we, his people, his bride, must do. At the very end of the book of Revelation, we're told the bride and the spirit say, Come! The bride and the spirit, the church in its organization, its organism, says, Come! The church is the agent of missions. And it is the going forth of His Word and His Spirit. That's why prayer is so essential. It's one thing to pray that God would raise up laborers for His harvest, but all they can do is sow seed and water. But without God giving the increase, nothing grows. There's no harvest. Jesus promised a white harvest because He and the Father send the Spirit to enlighten many who hear the Gospel message and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so what is that message? I've hinted at it already. We find it in verse 46 and 47a. And He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins Repentance and remission of sins. So he speaks of the death of Christ, the sacrificial atoning work of Christ, His resurrection, and the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness. Now again, remember, Jesus only had so much time in these 40 days to give the disciples, a summary of what he'd been teaching them for three and a half years, and now Luke takes that summary that Jesus has given them, and he summarizes it again. 
In condensed form, Jesus says, this is about the atoning sacrifice or death of Christ. It behooved. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary? Did God have to send His Son to die for sinners? Anselm, the old philosopher of antiquity, said yes in his work. Why the God-man? He says, well, we have a great debt to pay, and we can't pay it, so God had to pay it in his son. Anselm, I'm sure, was familiar with Paul's argument, but I'll give you the inspired argument. Romans 3.26, Paul says this is the only way that God could be just and the justifier of sinners. How else could it be that God can remain holy and just and yet forgive a people who in their representative head are fallen and dead in trespasses and sins? That's why this is, in that sense, the only possible method where God could remain faithful to His character and establish relationship with us afresh. It behooved Christ to suffer. And He did so. Remember His first words on the cross, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken? You see, many of us have probably studied a little bit the physical torture that Christ went through on the cross. But do you recognize, brethren, that that was nothing compared to the spiritual pain that Jesus underwent, being separated from the Father, undergoing the wrath that was due us for all eternity upon Him. But praise God for His last words on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. He completed that work. So that he that knew no sin could become sin for us. Right? He that was the righteous one could pay the penalty for us. That so we could have that dual transfer, that double transfer as Luther spoke of. His righteousness being imputed to us because of our sin being imputed to him. That's what the gospel's all about. But it's also about his resurrection. The proof that the Father was satisfied with the Son's sacrifice. I would encourage you to read Isaiah 52, 13 to the end this afternoon. You'll find there in the first three verses of that section and the last three a prophecy of Christ's humiliation and exaltation and the gospel going forth in the proclamation. And that's what you find here. The sacrifice or death of Christ is resurrection and his proclamation, and that repentance and remission should be preached in his name. Now, how often do you hear, hear repentance being preached today? Probably not a lot. But your pastor and your elders took an oath regarding their understanding of the Westminster Confession which consistent with Scripture says in chapter 15, paragraph 1, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine of which is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that 
of faith in Christ. Now remember that faith and repentance are children like two sides of the same coin. So when I'm talking about repentance, faith is right there too. Right? And so we find in Scripture sometimes the preaching of repentance, sometimes the repeating of faith, sometimes the repentance and faith. It's all, right? You can't preach repentance, turn from something if you don't know what you're turned to. You can't really turn to something if you don't know what you're turning away from. So it, this clearly includes repentance and faith. But that implies that we have to preach about sin. It suggests that sin has to be brought up in the conversation. And we learn in Romans 3.20 that it's by the law that comes the knowledge of sin. That means the law of God needs to be proclaimed. That moral standard of the Ten Commandments, which has never changed, which was written uh, in the consciences of Adam and Eve at creation. And is that which, though, has been tainted by the fall, has not been totally eliminated by the fall. So we must proclaim repentance. We must proclaim remission of sins or forgiveness. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that really what the heathen is looking for? In their heart of hearts, they have some sense that they're guilty before the living God. But it's not until the Spirit begins to work with them in them in a unique way that they begin to recognize, like Pilgrim did in Pilgrim's Progress, that they've got a weighty burden on their back. So isn't that... Doesn't that tell us where we need to begin our prayers for our loved ones who are outside of Christ? Pray that God would convict them of their sins and then draw them to the Savior. That's what we need so desperately. That's what our nation needs so desperately and individuals within our nation. It should be preached or proclaimed. It's literally the word that could be translated heralded. It's to be heralded. In other words, it has this sense that we're just the ambassadors. We're just the messengers of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, when we go to the heathen, we're going to those who have followed the usurper king. Their fathers did long ago, and they've stayed in their father's tradition and have continued to serve Satan. And here, we come as ambassadors saying, hey, the rightful king the rightful administration is here to forgive you, but you must turn from the wrongful administration and you must come and serve the true King of Kings. We go in His name to preach. We don't go in our name. We go in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so what's the strategy? We've looked at the impetus, the driving force of missions, the message of missions. What's the strategy? We find that here at the end of verse 47 and 48. This is to be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. What's the strategy? It's to be to everywhere. To all nations. To all, literally, ethne. The word we get, ethnicity. This isn't a reference 
to nation-states as we know them today that meet at the United Nations. This is not referring to nation-states that have developed after, uh, if some of you are familiar with history, the Westphalian um, Agreement, where at Westphalia they agreed to these nation-states and borders. It's not referring to that. It's referring to ethnic groups. In a number of passages we're told uh, that not only... um, ethnic groups or nations, but tribes and kindreds. Sometimes the word clans or families are used in the Old Testament. It seems to be referring to something even smaller than tribes. Even smaller than the 16 tribes in Liberia, the gospel is to go forth into the clans of the tribes. doesn't mean that every person will necessarily hear the gospel. There are many that have died without hearing the gospel, correct? And we have no, we're not told that we have every living person will ever hear the gospel preached before Christ returns. But we do have knowledge that we're supposed to take the gospel to all the ethnic, all the families, tribes, kindred, and tongues. And we are told the picture of those that worship around the throne that there will be those from every tribe, kindred, and tongue. What a beautiful picture. Where we live, we don't have every tribe, kindred, and tongue. So we can't rightfully expect, and I would contend it's wrong for churches to say their vision is uh, to reflect heaven and the ethnic groups of heaven. How are they going to reflect the ethnic groups of heaven if you don't have the ethnic groups of heaven in your locality as a local congregation? But it doesn't mean you neglect those other ethnic groups far away. They may be just down in Atlanta, or they may be across the globe. But we're to be concerned that the gospel goes to all of them. It's to go to everywhere, but notice it's to start at home, beginning at Jerusalem. We're all to be witnesses, and we're to start at home. Now, I'm not going to tell you that everybody's called to be a missionary or a minister or an elder. I think Paul's very clear in Colossians 2, 4, uh, 4, 2 and following that there's a distinction to be made between the gospel minister uh, and the gospel minister that's sent to go and extend the kingdom. There's two kinds of gospel ministers. Those that are called to maintain the fruits of the gospel in any given location, right? And then there are those that are called to go beyond that into areas that have not heard the gospel. But here we see all Christians are called to serve the Lord in witness. It's interesting, John Bunyan takes this passage uh, and preached a sermon that he eventually has written, the Jerusalem sinner saved. He takes this verse one step further. He says, not only is missions to begin at home, he says missions is to begin amongst the most heinous of sinners. He said the Jerusalem people, they were the ones that said, crucify Him, crucify Him. To whom much is given, much is required. Many had rejected the Gospel there, and yet Jesus says, start there. Start. This is a hard place, but start here. And then go out in concentric circles. 
And that's what I think Paul did when he went to strategic cities and established a a beachhead uh, of churches in those localities. And then we're told that the whole regions hurt. We see that he even set up a seminary at Ephesus, taught there for two and a half years, and we're told that the whole region heard the word of God. Probably doesn't mean every person. Doesn't mean Paul went all those places. It's pretty clear in the book of Colossians that he never went to Colossae, but it's most likely that somebody from that seminary went down there to Colossae. And then that church loved Paul, the seminary preacher there at Ephesus so much that they're prepared to send their senior pastor up to Rome and endanger his life going to see Paul in prison as a representative of that congregation that had grown to love Paul. So our strategy is to go everywhere but start at home. And we're witnesses. And I'm sure you know what this word comes from. It comes from the word that we get martyr from. It doesn't mean we're all called to be martyrs. But what it does mean is we're to be willing to be martyred for our testimony. And most of the apostles were martyred for their testimony. And many that seek to take the gospel in certain areas, particularly in the 1040 window, that area of the globe that's dominated by militant Islam, many do die. Right. Many of our brethren have gone to be with the Lord uh, in recent days in Afghanistan. And we don't even know how many. And certainly our present administration or regime is not going to tell us how many. It's not for their good, it's not for their numbers to let everybody know exactly what the tally is. But it's high. And our brethren have been willing to say, yes, I'm a Christian, that's why I said I was so many years ago when we took a census. And yes, I still am. You can have my head. We need to be prepared for that. I don't expect that in our day, in our age, but has the God not called us to that type of discipleship? That's the strategy. To everywhere, starting at home. The promise in verse 49 And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Jesus promises to send the Spirit. It's interesting, in the parallel passage of this, in John, we actually find that it says Jesus breathed upon them the Spirit. In other words, Jesus gave them the Spirit in some measure even before Pentecost. Well, I would argue from Psalm 51 that David had the Spirit. So Old Testament believers had the Spirit. So they had the Spirit at some point when they were converted, whether they were converted before or after Jesus commissioned them. They get another dose of the Holy Spirit of grace and supplication. And, but then they're told, you've got to tarry longer, you've got to wait. Some of you have been waiting to see God move in the hearts of some of your loved ones for quite a long time. I suspect you do. I know my heart aches 
I know my heart, my wife's heart aches for those in our own family who are outside of Christ. Here they're to wait, not waiting for their loved one's conversion, waiting for the power, the dunamis, the word that we get dynamite from. In another parallel passage, Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority, all exousia is given to me. I'm going to give you authority and power. You just don't have the badge, you got the dynamite too. Because we go in his name. That's the promise. He's promised us his spirit will attend this work of taking the gospel to our neighborhoods, to our families, to the nations. He's promised to send his spirit with us until he returns. What a blessing. And isn't that exactly what the apostles did? Paul could, uh, Peter could preach in Acts 2.38, Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And many were converted. Just a little later, Peter could preach in Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Just a little bit later in 5.31, Peter again, Him hath God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior, for to give repentance unto Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then Paul could summarize his ministry in Ephesus in that last time he visits them before his first imprisonment in Acts 20.21. There he says that he spent his time at Ephesus testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. The message hasn't changed. We're to go forth. Just a quick summary of 50 and 52. The Lord takes them to Bethany. He raises his hands. He gives them a benediction. He likely gave them the ironic benediction found in number six. It's very interesting in that unique psalm of mission, Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, we find the psalmist praying the ironic blessing. And praying that God would bless His church so the church would be able to speak of salvation to the nations. You see, an unhealthy church is not prepared to do missions. And we've got to get ourselves right before we take this message to the world. Then we see Christ's ascension, which obviously applies His session at the right hand of God, and His return. And are those not themes that are constantly in the apostolic preaching throughout the book of Acts? Not only his death, not only his resurrection, but his ascension, his session, and his return. Isn't that what we just stated in the Nicene Creed an hour ago? Those critical doctrines? And they worship. You see, worship produces witness... But when witness is believed, when it's believed on, the gospel is believed on the world, it creates worship. It creates new communities of worshipers. Worship begins missions and worship is the end of missions because God is effectually drawing those that would be worshipers of Him. 
So an application, three applications this morning as we close. Don't get tired of the old, old story. It is old, old, old. But it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. We must never grow tired of the Gospel. We see in Scripture some prophets who preach and see very little fruit. Just consider Jeremiah. And then consider a very reluctant prophet, Jonah. Not exactly the model missionary. And he sees plenty of fruit in the nation of Assyria, at least for a time. It's not... Our our success is not measured by these things. It's measured by our faithfulness. But just because we haven't seen large amounts of growth in our locality in any short period of time does not mean that the gospel's lost its power. Because you have the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God behind this gospel. It is still all-powerful. Amen? Let's not forget the old, old story. Don't grow tired of it. Secondly, don't grow weary waiting or tarrying on the Lord for answered prayer. God has promised to answer the cries of His people. If an ungodly judge would finally give in to an importunate widow, how much more, Jesus says, will our Heavenly Father hear our cries. We have faith in that, don't we? But we're much like the Father that has to cry, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let us pray that God would increase our faith to believe these prayers and tarry, wait. God's got something for us in waiting. I don't fully understand all that He does in my life and the life of others that have to wait and wait and wait, and wait, and wait. And some of us may go to glory before we see our prayers answered in some of the loved ones we're praying for. And lastly, never believe your labor is in vain. You're going to need increased space for this too. I, I always find this very interesting. In one of the longest chapters, and remember, Paul didn't have chapter divisions, but one of the very long sections... Uh, in 1 Corinthians, chapter, which is divided into chapter 15, Paul spends a long time talking about the reality of the resurrection of the dead. And he bases it on Christ's resurrection. He says it's because Christ has been raised, you'll be raised. Saints will be raised. And then this long section, or almost a, it's almost sermonic, He ends with a very short application in verse 58. Therefore, he's changing changing direction just a little bit. Here's an implication. My beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't label for ourselves. If you're laboring for the Lord, it's not in vain. 
Let me close with just one story of a missionary whose labors were not in vain. A missionary who I suspect almost none of you will be familiar with. But I'm sure he shines as a light in heaven just as many, just as those we are familiar with. 1866, Robert Thomas, missionary to China. He's aware of the fact that the gospel has not penetrated Korea. He engages himself in the translation of the scriptures in that language. He hires a boat, and he and other missionaries and those that are running the boat, they're going to go over and deliver Bibles. They're going to be an early Brother Andrew, Bible smugglers to Korea. The military watch believes they know what they're doing as they see that boat boat approach in the water. They fire on that boat. That boat capsizes. Everyone's lost but Robert Thomas. I don't think he had Ziploc bags. I don't know how he got Bibles in the ocean to the shore. But he did. And they killed him there on the shore. And then that military garrison decided to start reading the books he left them. And that's how the gospel came to the nation of Korea. There are probably more conservative Presbyterians worshiping in Korea than in the United States, close to it. The gospel went forth in power and in relative purity against a cultural tide that was significantly not like Western culture. It had great power. It might have appeared to anybody who heard that story. You know, if they had the Internet back then, we probably would have heard about it the next morning, and we would have thought, what a waste. Right? Because it would have been a long time before you heard that some of this military garrison began reading the Scriptures and were converted. So our labor's not in vain. Don't get tired of the old, old story. Don't get tired of tarrying in prayer. Don't get tired of doing works of grace, word and deed ministry to those that are outside of Christ. May the Lord bless you.